I would like to welcome you to the event 52, which is Desert Island Poems with Hugh Dennis in conversation with Jill Abraham. I'd like to thank the uh, sponsors for this event, the Arts Council of England, and also uh, more locally, John Goodwin Estate Agents and the Feathers Hotel. Jill Abraham is probably known to many of you because she's contributed and participated in this festival for, for many years. When not involved in poetry, Jill has a full-time job creating the sound effects for comedy shows on BBC Radio and TV. And one of these shows is The Now Show. That is her connection with Hugh Dennis. So I'd like to welcome them both to the stage and hand over to Jill, who will introduce our guest, Hugh Dennis. Thank you. I feel I should introduce someone, but I, I don't have anyone to introduce. No, well, um, Tricia said that I was going to introduce you, but I figure two things. One is that the reason you bought a ticket is because you all know who he is. And the other thing is that he's going to tell us a lot more about himself in the next hour, so I don't need to bother. Um, but this is quite nerve-wracking because one of the things that's started happening more recently on the Now Show is that uh, Hugh and... Uh, Steve now interview somebody. So they interview somebody on the radio, and now I've got to interview him. So if my hands are shaking, <sighs> you'll know why. Um, I'm quite pleasant. Yes. Yeah, I'll say that about him. I mean, I didn't invite Steve to come and do Desert Island Poems. I do you think he'd be upset about that? No, I saw him last night. In fact, I saw him this morning and told him I was coming. He told me I'd have a really nice time. Jolly good. Yeah. So I can still come on the Now Show. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, can. Would you like some water? Yes, please. Thank you very much. Let's get stuck in with the questions then. And um, this being a poetry festival, how did poetry come into your life? Was it always there? Uh, I suppose so, not in a sort of, not in a formal way. I think my dad was always quite keen on, um, on poems. And my, my father um, used to read stuff to my mother every night. So I would come home from school and my dad would be, my dad was a vicar, so he was at home a lot wasn't that he wasn't working. <laughs> he just happened to work from home. And uh, he would be in the kitchen and he would be reading my mum something, so a newspaper article or a, or a, or a poem. So I've always sort of, I've lived with, with that kind of stuff. And also I think because my father was, you know, a vicar and then a, a bishop and all the rest of it, you sort of get used to verse, actually, because a lot of services are verse, aren't they, there? You know, it's a, it's a very important part of worship, really, isn't it? The rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> and the poetry in the King James Bible is beautiful. Oh, People yeah, no, really, 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 really beautiful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I kind of grew up with it. And my father also and my parents both have a sort of slight sense of the absurd, so um, yeah. there was lots of kind of nonsense poetry going on, little ditties and things. Yeah, I'm... I discovered today that we have something in common. We both started off with nonsense verse and that we have something in common with taste because we both thought that um, Edward Lear was too nonsensical, that A.A. A. Milne is a, 
Isn't yeah, it? I never really. Liked, I mean, I had uh, I had the book. What's the Edward Lear's big book called? The Empire's presumably it's called an anthology of Edward Lear. <laughs> I think I just had and a small one to do called with that, yeah, so. the Book of Nonsense Verse or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I always thought it was ridiculous, and I, I um, which is meant to be, obviously, but I didn't really like it. In the same way, actually, as I always found Monty Python a bit too sort of out there. I know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they'll never have you back on BBC Two. Um, well, your first poem is A.A. Mill, so. It is. So, uh, it. And it's from And Now We Are Six. Because when. Well, actually, I don't even know if I was six. Because I had uh, an uncle and aunt who used to give us books. And on my. They always got my age wrong. So, whether, <laughs> I, got, whether I was given this when I was six or not, I don't know. I do remember being given the Blue Peter Annual by them when I was 17, so they obviously had no... (laughs) (laughs) Clearly had no idea really how old I was. Anyway, why have I chosen this? This is a poem called The Knight Whose Armour Didn't Squeak. Um, It's about a knight called Sir Thomas Tom of Appledore. And I suppose I've chosen it because I... I was very familiar with it growing up. But as I've got older, I've, bought, I've started to think that actually A.A. A. Milne, in a lot of those books, in a lot of those poems in that book, actually is dealing with very, very sort of adult themes, but in a kind of childlike way. So I, I take this to be all about professional jealousy and, and that you mustn't ever kind of let it overtake you, really. Anyway, I will read it. The Knight Whose Armour Didn't Squeak. Of all the knights in Appledore, the wisest was Sir Thomas Tom. He multiplied as far as four and knew what nine was taken from to make eleven. He could write a letter to another knight. No other knight in all the land could do the things which he could do. Not only did he understand the way to polish swords, but knew what remedy a knight should seek whose armour had begun to squeak. And if he didn't fight too much... It wasn't that he didn't care for blips and buffetings and such, but felt that it was hardly fair to risk, by frequent injuries, a brain as delicate as his. (laughs) His castle, Castle Tom, was set conveniently on a hill, and daily, when it wasn't wet, he paced the battlements until some smaller knight, who couldn't swim, should reach the moat and challenge him. Well, sometimes, feeling full of fight, he hurried out to scour the plain, and seeing some approaching knight, he either hurried home again or hid, and when the foe was past, blew a triumphant trumpet blast. One day, when good Sir Thomas Tom was resting in a handy ditch, the noises he was hiding from, though very much the noises which he'd always hidden from before, seemed somehow less. Or was it more? The trotting horse, the trumpet's blast, the whistling sword, the armour's squeak, these, and especially the last, had clattered by him all the week. Was this the same, or was it not? Something was different. But what? Sir Thomas raised a cautious ear and listened as Sir Hugh went by. And suddenly he seemed to hear, or not to hear, the reason why this stranger made a nicer sound than other knights who lived around. Sir Thomas watched the way he went. His rage was such he couldn't speak. For years they'd called him down in Kent, the knight whose armour didn't squeak. Yet here and now he looked upon another knight whose squeak had gone. He rushed to where his horse was tied. He spurred it to a rapid trot. The only fear he felt inside about his enemy was not how sharp his sword, how stout his heart, but has he got too long a start. Sir Hugh was singing hand on hip. 
when something sudden came along and caught him a terrific blip right in the middle of his song. A thunderstorm, he thought, of course, and toppled gently off his horse. <laughs> then said the good Sir Thomas Tom, dismounting with a friendly air, Allow me to extract you from the heavy armour that you wear. At times like these, the bravest knight may find his armour much too tight. A hundred yards or so beyond the scene of brave Sir Hugh's defeat, Sir Thomas found a useful pond, and careful not to wet his feet, he brought the armour to the brink and flung it in and watched it sink. So ever after, more and more, the men of Kent would proudly speak of Thomas Tom of Appledore, the knight whose armour didn't squeak, while Hugh, the knight who gave him best, squeaks just as badly as the rest. <laughs> Oh, that was great. And um, having your namesake in the poem, nothing to do with the way you... No, well, actually, no, because when, uh, when I was introduced to that poem, I wasn't Hugh. Hugh is an adult uh, name change. So when I, when I joined Equity, Hugh is my middle name, actually. And when I joined Equity, and I, when I was 23, I'd just left Cambridge, there was another Peter Dennis, um, Peter Hugh Dennis. And there was another Peter Dennis, and he was 65 or 70. He was just sort of retiring and he owned the rights to the Winnie the Pooh stories, and he used to read them at the Edinburgh Festival, whereas I was on BBC Two doing some quite unpleasant comedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was no chance of us being confused, really. So um, my agents wrote to Equity and said, look, could, could our Peter Dennis please be called Peter Dennis because there's no chance of confusion with the other Peter Dennis. And Equity wrote back and said, well, we're, you know, under normal circumstances, yes, but you have one small problem, and that is that the other Peter Dennis is the chairman of the Equity Name Change <laughs> Committee. <laughs> so I, <laughs> understandably, uh, then went for my uh, middle name, Hugh. So, uh -huh. oh, yeah, I answer to both. Yes, um, yeah, because I, I hear people at work calling you Pete, but I've never been introduced to you as Pete, so you're Hugh to me. Well, Steve calls me Pete and refers to me as Hugh. That's um, <laughs> really peculiar. So let's go back a little bit um, more, um, because a lot of people um, study poetry at school. Tell us yeah. about your school and whether you... Well, right. did we do poetry? I suppose we did. I mean, I did... Um, I remember reading a poem called... Um, I think it was called Meg Merrilies. Is that by Keats? Anyone? No one. Old Meg, she was a gypsy and lived upon the moor. At home, it was the wild heath turf. Her house was out of doors, which I always thought was a desperate rhyme. Always made me laugh. Um, so there wasn't um, there wasn't much poetry, but it was exactly the kind of school where you would do a lot. I went to a school, um, a rather unusual school, actually called um, University College School, in which used to be the feeder school for University College London, which was a, a very incredibly liberal, incredibly liberal school, and very academic school. But everybody thought it was a bit strange because if you if you fill in the form, and on that form for a job or a university place, or whatever, there's always a box that goes university, and then there's a slash, and it goes college, and then there's another slash, and then there's school, <laughs> and you're meant to cross out two of them and then write the name of your <laughs> whatever it was. But if you went to university college school, you effectively just copied it. <laughs> And everybody thought you were a moron. Anyway, that's, but it, were, it was slightly unusual school. And by this point, my, my father was a bishop by this point. 
But what was rather unusual about University College School as a choice for a bishop was that it was the only avowedly atheist school in Britain. <laughs> so we had no religious education at all, and there were no religious assemblies. So there were often assemblies full of... Um, we had a whole week of assemblies about Def Leppard, I remember. <laughs> and one about Leonard Skinner. Actually, maybe it was Leonard Skinner, yeah. That would make more sense. Yeah. I think we need to uh, run on to another poem. What are you going to Yeah, well, I don't know. What do you think? What would be good? Well, if we're talking about school, we could look at the, the sort of serious poems that a lot of people here will have, will have um, read at school. So you've picked Well, should we do We Real Cool? <gasps> oh, Is yes. that a good idea? Uh, by uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. So Gwendolyn Brooks, um, this is a very topical poem. Um, it was, she was the first African-American female poet laureate, and had she still been alive, it would have been her 100th birthday last month. And there was a big event in London um, at the British Library last week honouring her, which was fantastic. And here's a recording of her reading We Real Cool. We Real Cool, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. Which I just think is great. I mean, I think it's great because it's, um, you know, so she's walked past a, a pool hall, hasn't she? And you've seen these incredibly cool guys in it. And effectively, it's, you know, we real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. And my, my take on that is it's fine to be a nerd. Um, <laughs> in the sense that that is just watching really cool... It's about boys of a certain age, isn't it, who are all sort of hanging around and thinking that life is all about, you know, just sort of hanging out. And I, I wasn't like that at all. So I take great comfort from that particular poem that I actually worked quite hard and did my homework and stuff. And that's, that's the reason it's there. And you were quite sporty as well at school, I believe. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the captain of rugby and the captain of football. And, do and the vice captain of cricket. Well. <laughs> and do your children, what, what are their interests? Are they into sport? Um, yes, but they, um, my daughter's very, very good at netball, so she, she uh, always played for her school at netball, and my son is equally good, but just can't be bothered. He's in a pool hall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> being cool. And do you, go, do you go and watch them play? Are you an embarrassing dad on the touch? Well, line? I don't know. This is, this is leading on to another poem, isn't it, this? Because there's a great uh, CD Lewis um, poem called uh, Walking Away I think it's called, is it not? If I, I can find it. it. And um, what I love about that is it's about, it's about the moment when you, you realise that your sort of job as a parent really is to, is to prepare your children to leave home um, and, uh, and it's that sort of rising consciousness actually that you sort of become less, less important to your children and that's exactly how it should how it should work, but it's a sort of shocking, it's a rather shocking moment, and if I could find the poem, I'd be much, much happier, because then I would be able to read it to you. <laughs> Where is that? The thing I should, is it there? 
This is good, isn't it? This is. Uh, we can. This will. They'll never show you this bit. <laughs> no, is it there? No. Well, it doesn't seem to be there, which is really a great thing. Must be there somewhere. Wait a second. Just have to talk amongst yourselves for a minute. Shall I play another poem while you're looking yeah, for no, it? Do. Yes, do. Okay. Um, oh, it's here. I oh, got it. Oh, there you go. I've got it here. So, Walking Away by Cecil Day-Lewis. It's 18 years ago, almost to the day, a sunny day with leaves just turning, the touchlines new ruled since I watched you play your first game of football. Then, like a satellite wrenched from its orbit, go drifting away. Behind a scatter of boys, I can see you walking away from me towards the school with the pathos of a half-fledged thing set free into a wilderness the gate of one who finds no path where the path should be. That hesitant figure eddying away like a winged seed loosened from its parent stem has something I never quite grasped to convey about nature's give and take, the small, the scorching ordeals which fire one's irresolute clay. I've had worse partings, but none that so gnaws at my mind still. Perhaps it is roughly saying what God alone could perfectly show, how selfhood begins with a walking away, and love is proved in the letting go. Which I think is a really beautiful poem. It's not, absolutely nothing like my own experience, <laughs> um, in that my son, would, who was very good at sport, would never, ever let me go and watch him play sport. So I've never seen him uh, play sport. I used to have to park the car so I could watch through the windscreen... And he wouldn't know. Uh, he wouldn't know that I was. I was there. My own moment, which was rather like this, was when he was about. I don't know how old he was. He was just just in the bed, and I did that. Um, I did that thing that young fathers do. I got home very late at night once, probably after the now show, and um, I went up to his room just to sort of you know see my sleeping child, and I looked down at him with that sort of loving gaze, kind of thinking, "Oh, Fred, look at you." Great, aren't you? Okay. And he, he was asleep and he just he opened his eyes and he looked straight at me and he went Get out <laughs> and I, I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. Because he'd reached the point I wanted him to reach, but seventeen years too early. That's, uh, that's, what, <laughs> that's what happened there. But I think that's a lovely, lovely poem. I also like the idea that it's obviously written by Cecil Day Lewis, who's the father of Daniel Day Lewis. So maybe it's about Daniel Day Lewis, who I can't imagine playing sport of any type. So, uh, so there you go. Apart from boxing, yeah, imagine him doing that. Is your real family anything like your outnumbered family? I'm sure you all know about outnumbered, right? Uh, are they anything like them? Uh, no, and I'm a much, much better father. <laughs> Do we believe than him? Than I appear to be. Um, well, they're sort of... My kids are a year younger than... So my, my oldest is a year younger than the oldest outnumbered child, and my daughter is a year younger than... Um, the second one. So I always knew that what was coming, kind of thing, because the stories were so accurate that you thought, in a year's time, this is going to happen. Yeah. And it generally did. And I mean, I remember it obviously was a huge success, but um, how do you feel about that adage, never work with children or animals? Uh, 
I think in most cases it's it's fine. I've never worked, I worked with a penguin once, and that was an absolute <laughs> disaster. But the but with children, the reason they don't they say don't work with children is because children will do things which are unexpected. There are literally unexpected things that children do as a thing you're after. Then work with children. <laughs> I mean, that was the whole basis of outnumbered, wasn't it? That you didn't quite know what was coming or what was going to happen. Yeah, because a lot uh, of it was was kind of improvised. Or well, it, it just wasn't. Happened. Yeah, they yeah. just film what was happening and then. Well, sort of. I mean, it was improvised. It was improvised early on because um, and it wasn't scripted for one very simple reason, which was that none of them could read. <laughs> I mean, that's, so there was no point in giving them a script because they were all too young. I think Tiger, the oldest child, probably could. But so it was all it was all improvised. But by the end, it was it was scripted. And I, as the the adults, we were told to learn our lines, but not to learn them very well, which was fine, because <laughs> I, I would have done that anyway. Um, so let's have another poem. Where should we go next? Well, what do you, um, what do you think? <clears throat> I think, possibly, mm-hmm. should we do Maya Angelou, oh, just because yes. I like that very much. Right? Okay. So we've got, again, we've got a recording of Maya Angelou, do you want to say anything before we... Well, not really, except that I, I, I think she's had... She's one of those people, you know, so she was a kind of civil rights campaigner and a poet and an and a author and sort of everything and knew everyone sort of from Malcolm X to, you know, Martin Luther King and, you know, just a real sort of symbol of that period and then did a, a poem at Clinton's inauguration and all that sort of stuff. And you just think, she's one of those people who you just look at and you go... I've done absolutely nothing at all in my life. I've done nothing. Um, And writes just beautifully. And this poem is called uh, Still I Rise. And it's really about... um, Well, yeah, it's just about a a black woman fighting against everything, isn't it? And sort of constantly overcoming and rising. And when you read the story of her life, which is absolutely extraordinary, you think, well, you've actually... You've done that. So it's, again, you know, poetry just telling a story in a very beautiful, concise and moving way. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room, just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? <laughs> Don't take it awful hard just because I laugh. <laughs> As if I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like life, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance as if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out 
of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak miraculously clear, I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave, and so I rise, I rise, I rise. Her performance adds so much to it as well, doesn't she? Oh, I just think you, she just feels every word of that, doesn't she? Absolutely. And you know she's sort of, and she's uh, lived it. It's a great, great poem. Yeah, fantastic. I was really delighted with the choice and the variety of the choice that you made today. Um, I would dispute the Thank fact... Thank you, Kirsty. <laughs> I would dispute the fact, though, that you've done nothing. I mean, you... Well, in my life. In well, I haven't overcome, you know... I've had a remarkably smooth passage, haven't I? Haven't I? I mean, it's... You know, I'm... And I know this is a sort of objection to the BBC, which I absolutely understand, but I am a... You know, I am a white, middle-class man who went to Cambridge. <laughs> so I haven't had to overcome, you know, much. And I'm greatly admiring of people who have... Yeah, absolutely, I take that point. Yeah. And Cambridge is where you met Steve Punt. I did meet Steve, yeah. That's, uh, I was thinking about that the other day, actually, because I did meet him there, and it was my, my daughter's school have a graduation uh, ceremony, which I went to on Friday, and I was thinking about, <laughs> about graduation at Cambridge. And there were two things about graduation at Cambridge which I absolutely loved. And the first one was when the, when the results went out, because it was a completely different world, and I, I really do feel for kids now because there is so much pressure on them. I remember that in Footlights, so I did Footlights, which was the comedy thing, and there was a guy in Footlights called Paul, and they put all the results up on the Senate House wall, and he went up to look at the results, and Paul had got a 2-2, and he was doing English, he got a 2-2, and he looked incredibly sad, and Robert, our friend who was with him, went, look, Paul, honestly, it's fine, it's absolutely fine, it's not a 2-1, it's too, too, but it's absolutely, it's fine. It's really fine. Don't be upset. It's really fine. And Paul went, no, I no I'm not upset about that. I'm, I'm upset because I've just realised that I could have worked less hard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was fantastic. And that sort of mirrored a thing at my school, again, which was a very academic, a really academic school. But there was, um, there was one kid there, it was the head boy, actually, who did... It was the point when you could get... Um, well, if you took your A-levels and you didn't do very well, they, you got an F, which was a fail, or the one above that was an O-level pass, so it was called an A. So it kind of went A, B, C, D, E, O, F. Those <laughs> are the grades. And the first time he took, his, he took his exams, he got two Fs and an O. <laughs> and he stayed on for a year, kept in the first 15, and he retook them, and he got two O's and an F. <laughs> <laughs> But, again, just with a very positive attitude to life, he was absolutely delighted because he had worked out that he could now spell OO-F-OFF with his A-level <laughs> results. And, again, 
I absolutely, I applaud that. <laughs> but the, th the thing about Steve, so Steve, Steve um, was in my year, and he was at a different college. He was at St. Catherine's, and I was at St. John's. And he had gone to Cambridge um, to do comedy. So I, di I didn't even know Footlights existed when I went there, but he had gone to do comedy in the same way that Nick Hancock, who was in our year, was also there to do comedy. And comedy was his thing. So he, he sort of almost abandoned his English degree in order to do, to do comedy. But it was so filled his, his life and everything. that On graduation day, there's a very weird ceremony where you go to the Senate House and the Vice-Chancellor sits and you have to hold on to the Vice-Chancellor's fingers and all this and... And your, your parents come and all the rest of it. And my parents came. Mine was in the morning. It was at 11 o'clock. Um, and my parents come up and they dress up and they'll, you know, stay in a hotel the night before. And Steve invited pretty much his whole family to come up for graduation. But hadn't remembered, and this is very typical of Steve, he hadn't remembered or hadn't worked out that actually we were doing a show in Oxford that night. <laughs> and he was due to graduate at half past three. His parents had been there since 11 in the morning. And at three o'clock, he had to go to his parents' I can't graduate, I'm afraid. I've got to go to Oxford now. <laughs> and he left on the train. And so his parents were just there, all sort of doled up. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it's just great. Things you do when you're a teenager. It's amazing. And what did yeah. your parents think about you going into comedy? Because you, you said they went to... You went to... They were quite liberal and you went to a liberal school, but... Um, you know, yeah. for the son of a bishop to go into comedy. No, well, they, were very, no they were very... Uh, that, well, I didn't initially go into comedy, so I, I left and I joined um, Unilever, where I was in charge of UK deodorants. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, I was the brand manager of a thing called Lynx, and I did it for five years, uh, and then we were offered a teleprogram. And whatever. But while I was doing that, I was doing spitting image. And this is, how my, this is my dad's attitude to it. So my dad was by then a diocesan bishop, and he, one of the voices I did on Spitting Image was the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> and my father told the Archbishop of Canterbury in a sort of career suicide um, that I was his voice on uh, Spitting Image. Anyway, if, and this is, there is a, you know, if you're a senior bishop, it's only done on time, really. So in the last two or three years of your career as a diocesan bishop, it's quite likely you're going to the House of Lords and you sit as a Lord spiritual on the cross benches. Anyway, so my dad went into the House of Lords, and um, on the day he went in, my brother and I and my mother were sitting in the gallery. It was George Carey, and uh, he processed in. Again, there was this really weird thing where you process in with a bishop on each finger. <laughs> so my dad was on this finger, <laughs> Bishop Penrith was on this finger, and um, as he processed in, the George Carey looked up at the gallery and he saw me, and I thought, oh, no, 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 this is really, really awful. No, 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 this is awful, because he knows about spitting images. This is dreadful. And he dropped my dad's hand. I remember that. He dropped my dad's hand like that, and I thought, oh, no. Uh, and he went, he looked up, and he went... <laughs> That's why I like the Church of England. So... It, they're incredibly supportive, my parents. And I did, I did have one conversation with my dad where I went, uh, you know, uh, it is sometimes a bit embarrassing in my world having a father who's a bishop. And he said, well, it's quite embarrassing in my world. <laughs> 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 but, you know, no, he's great. He's very cool about it, actually. Time for another poem. Oh, I say. Well, what should we do?
Shall we do um, sort of career changing one, didn't you? A career changing oh, one. Which one you said it yes, was? Yes, no, right? I can't remember what that was. I'm not even <laughs> sure that I, I think I might have already read that one. Well, we're talking about your father, so how about the Christopher Isherwood one? Oh, no, we could do that, yeah. Now, this is a little. My dad used to read this. This was one of his favourite sort of nonsense um, poems, and it's by uh, Christopher Isherwood, uh, who obviously wrote Goodbye uh, to. Berlin, who's a great sort of novelist of the 1930s, incredibly cool, wrote about the rise of Nazism and um, developed the character of Sally Bowles, who went on, you know, was the character in Cabaret and all the rest of it, and immensely respected. And, and he wrote this called The Common Cormorant, which is what my dad used to read a lot, which goes, The common cormorant, or shag, lays eggs inside a paper bag. You follow the idea, no doubt, it's to keep the lightning out. But what these unobservant birds have never thought of is that herds of wandering bears might come with buns and steal the bags to hold the crumbs. <laughs> and what, I mean, I think it's a very funny poem, but I also think, you know, when you, when you write things, and I've written lots of things, the really, really scary thing is putting them out into the public domain. You know, it must be, it's exactly the same with poems or whatever, isn't it? So the man who has written about the rise of Nazism... <laughs> presumably won lots of literary prizes, writes this and then thinks, oh, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very glad he did, but it must have been a bit of a moment for him. Oh, well, it's about a cormorant uh, and bags. <laughs> and that's why I like it. But it does remind me a lot of, of being at, at home. Um, so you did, was Spitting Image the first sort of broadcast comedy that you did? Uh, no, I think I'd, um, I think Steve and I were on the Jasper Carrot oh, yeah. program for a long time. So when we uh, when we left university together, Steve and Nick Hancock wanted to carry on with comedy, and I sort of did as a hobby. But I had this job with Unilever. So Steve said to me, um, "Look, would you become a double act because it's much less scary than doing it on my own?" He said, "I'll write it all." Um, and if you just, you know, we're going to do some open spots and things. And I said, well, that's fine. So a year out of Cambridge, we found ourselves down in the comedy store one Saturday night, and I was, I was running deodorants Monday to Friday. <laughs> and um, Jasper Carrot came down and said, D would you two like to write a sketch for my Saturday night live BBC One show? Uh, it might not be used, but if you write a sketch every week, it might be, because we don't know whether we have enough material until the read-through and all that. So, and Steve, brilliantly, because he was, you know, he was a real sort of driving force, always has been, went, oh, that's brilliant, because he knew, to Saturday night, that is 13 million viewers a week. Uh, so, yes, we'll do that. And I thought, yes, yes, we'll do that. that that's Saturday night. So that means I can carry on working for Unilever, <laughs> which is what I did for another five years, but that's where my... That's where my head was at, and that was the first telly. Wow. And then, so then, I mean, a lot of people start in radio and go on to telly, but you started in I think telly I did a bit of weekending. Of... I'd done with David Tyler, who you'll know, but you won't. Yeah. Pointless he... anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> he produces things like um, Cabin Pressure, which you, you might yeah. know. Fantastic, John Finnamore. Yeah. Um, and you've done, so you've done things that you've written and performed yeah. yourself like it's been a bad week, and yeah. the Now Show, of course, yeah. and then you've... Well, it's been a bad week, it was a Radio 2 show, we used to get sent in uh, stories, 
my, my, and we had to choose who'd had the worst week. We picked people who'd had a, a really terrible week and read them out to make people who actually had had a bad week feel much better about their weeks <laughs> because they hadn't had as bad a week as the person. And I remember the winner one week was someone who wrote in. It was a uh, lady who wrote in to say that she had, she knew that her husband was taking a particular route home. Uh, he drove home the same way every night. And she'd heard a traffic report. And she had phoned him and she'd said, uh, darling, I thought, I th- just to let you know, just be careful. Apparently there is a madman driving the wrong way uh, up the M40, right? And he, to which he had replied, what do you mean, a madman? There seem to be thousands of them. <laughs> <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> That's how that works. Yeah. So, I mean, writing is a very different thing, isn't it? If you're writing comedy, if you're writing a narrative thing, if, like if you're writing Blackadder or you're writing a comedy drama, it's a very, very different thing to writing a kind of a topical news thing because it is literally just, you know, writing for me is sort of sitting there and, and thinking of things that are sort of funny and then putting them together in a in a fairly random order. Or if you can't think of anything, you go and have a bath or you go and go for a run or you do something else. It's not writer's block is not possible, really, when you're yeah, writing about shows, the yeah. I can yeah. tell you a now show secret. Yeah. We record at 8 o'clock. If we get the script by 5 o'clock, we're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got to keep up with the news. You know, it's not that we're being lazy. No. <laughs> Should we have a musical interlude? Yeah, good. Do that thing. Is this Adelstrop musical this is interlude? Adelstrop. Yeah. So Adelstrop, I should say, you, you'll know Adelstrop by uh, Edward Thomas, which I, again, is a poem I love because Edward Thomas um, grew up in... Well, he lived in the South Downs, so he lived very near uh, Petersfield, which is where I lived, and he spent a lot of time talking about the same sort of uh, countryside that I know. But I also love Adelstrop because it's incredibly simple and it's the sort of feeling that we all know, I think, where you just stop in the station and you just sort of... Take it all in. I think it's, 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 it's lovely. So you might be wondering why it's a musical interlude. If any of you were in, <laughs> if any of you were in this very room last year, uh, you might remember Little Machine, um, who put famous poems to music. And one of my favourite ones is Adelstrop, so I was delighted that Hugh chose it. So here's Adelstrop as performed by Little Machine. Cloudlets in the sky and fall 
Gloucestershire. The other, the other reason I like Adelstock is that, um, say, uh, Edward Thomas had, had a great friendship, didn't he, with Robert uh, Frost. And Robert Frost supposedly wrote The Road Not Taken about um, Edward Thomas. And it's always, it's always irritated me. So when my kids were doing English GCSE or, or whatever it was, or in any form of sort of modern school-based literary criticism, that you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to interpret things yourself. So there are there are key points that you have to write. If you're analysing a poem, you have to say the the author, the poet means this, and means this, and means this, and means this, and it's all sort of ticked off on a checklist. And uh, it, it's always seemed to me that actually that's nonsense, isn't it? Because a, a particular poem or a particular work means something to you that it may not mean to anyone else, and and, and generally. I would have thought, having written things and not really known what they meant myself, <laughs> that I think that's probably true of most people, that when they're writing, you get meaning out of it or other people see things. So to actually tell someone what a poem means just, just seems counterproductive and to, and to cut off a whole sort of creative piece of a child's sort of imagination. Um, so that's, that's why that's in. And that's why, you, you, I mean, the road's not taken. We've got Robert Frost reading that, haven't yeah. we? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. 
And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So, the, so um, he sent it to Edward Thomas, uh, I mean, the general, the normal interpretation of that for most people is that if you take the road less travelled, if all the road not taken, you know, that would be tremendously beneficial and it's sort of a risk and it might pay off. But in fact, supposedly what Robert Frost was trying to say to Edward Thomas was, don't look back and blame everything on your life on little decisions that you've made. So, you know, and he couldn't convince Edward Thomas of, of what he meant I mean, it, it became a sort of a, a very interesting dispute. And, and even and when Robert Frost was asked, you know, in the 60s, he died in 1961, I think, Robert Frost. Um, but when he was asked what, what it meant, the road not taken, Robert Frost said, he didn't go, it means this, he went, it is a very tricky poem. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just think, I, I sort of hate the idea that you can actually you know, take absolute meanings out of things. It just seems pointless to me. Tell me about the cat. The cat. Now, the cat. This is from a... uh, I found this in a book. So I've been reading a book, a rather brilliant book, um, by a guy called Karl Urwe Nausgaard, called A Death in the Family. It's one of of five. It's an autobiographical book. It's an absolutely fantastic book. Um... The rhythm of it is amazing. It's just, it's just a, about a man's life, really, and how he copes with the death of his father. And then, you know, volumes two to five, I haven't read yet, so I can't, I can't tell you what the rest of it is. It's absolutely beautifully written, and it says it's an international bestseller on the outside. So. But, it, but in it, I found this poem by uh, a Norwegian poet called Olaf Halger, and it's just really short, and it's called The Cat, I think. And uh, I just think it's very, very funny. Okay. The cat is sitting out front when you come. Talk a bit with the cat. He's the most sensitive one here. <laughs> Which I just think... <laughs> it does great, I think. Because cats are like that, aren't they? You sort of... Um, and, we, and it also reminded me that when, when I was a kid, we had a cat that wasn't like that at all. We had an absolutely vicious uh, cat. There was a Burmese cat that was sort of wild. That if you, when you were stroking the cat, you had to just check that the cat was still purring. 